And good afternoon. It is 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, a spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live as online as well at www.cfrc.ca. So coming up on the show today in the first hour from a November 1st event at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Sean Mellon uh, reading from and launching his new book called Falling for London. Following that from a November see, 13th, I believe, yeah, event called Feed Dog and Friends uh, Kingston Launch. You'll hear a welcome by Stuart Ross. Then readings by Dale Tracy with her new cha- uh, chapbook, uh, debut chapbook called Celebration Machine. And Alice Burdick with her collection Deportment. Her reading will carry over into the second hour today. And in the second hour and following Alice's reading, you'll hear a reading by Alyssa Chisholm with her debut collection of poetry called uh, On the Count of None. And then also a fairly lengthy Q&A that followed that's very interesting. So this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Uh, so up first from a November 1st event again at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, here you're going to hear Sean Mallon uh, talking about and reading from his latest book, Falling for London, as he launched it in Kingston that evening. Here he is. Great. Thank you very much for coming tonight. And uh, a man who doesn't need any introduction to you guys, I think. Sean. Thanks, Oscar. Thanks. Thank you all for coming. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a culture shock uh, being in my hometown with uh, two guys I grew up with on North Bartlett Street with my brothers and two of my nieces and other assorted relatives. And strangely enough, the guy behind the camera there I used to work with at Global Toronto briefly <laughs> as my Queen's Park correspondent until I think was it stress leave or something that I caused you? Anyway, thank you all for being here. It's been it's it's quite a journey that's uh, that's brought me here uh, with the first book. I like to describe Falling for London as a, a prickly love letter to London, and I have loved London since my first visit, which was 1979. I was callow, clueless, no idea what I was getting into. My first big international trip, as it is for many of us, going to London. And didn't know any better than to uh, take the underground all the way from Heathrow all the way into uh, the center of the city. But I did. And stepped up in the center of the world's greatest city, not knowing what I was getting into. And uh, within about five seconds, a Cockney guy got right into my face, started snapping my picture. Took me about 30 seconds with my uh, groggy mind to realize that it was actually a scam. So that was my first Londoner. But as I write in Falling for London, somehow I managed to find a flea bag bed and breakfast where the toast was cold, the butter hard, and the bacon leathery. But it didn't matter. I walked astonished through the streets until my feet screamed 
drank warm beer in the pubs, and then fell asleep as I watched the world's greatest actors on stage. London had me then and never let me go. And it was from that first visit in 1979 that I had the dream of actually spending some time living in London, and especially living and working as a reporter, given that's how I made my living, a foreign correspondent. Uh, there's a romantic job title, if you ever had one. And I had a pretty good career at Global News, more than almost 30 years. I got to cover stories from coast to coast to coast, election campaigns, interviewed prime ministers, premiers, uh, covered disasters, great events, got to do a little bit of work abroad. But the foreign jobs always seemed to pass me by. And by 2011, I was starting to think that it just wasn't going to happen. And then the thunderbolt hit. The Europe bureau chief uh, quit the job, moved to, back to Canada. The job came open. I applied without much hope of actually getting it. And then in March 2011, the call came. We're sending you to London. And not only are we sending you to London, but we need you there within a few weeks because we need you to cover the royal wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. So looking from outside, you might think, great, congratulations, hop on a plane, go over to London, have a great time. Except I wasn't the only person affected by this turn of events. The two most important people in my life had a say in this. My daughter, who was six at the time, Julia, and my wife, Isabella. Now, if you look from the outside, you might not get it. You might say, well, you, what, you get to go to London. But you think about the other people affected. Well, I'm asking them to give up their job. Isabella had a job that she loved and was very good at. Set aside her family ties, move across the, the ocean. For Julia, give up her school, set aside her friends. Asking both of them to really upend my li their lives because I happen to get a cool job. So initially, they weren't that enthusiastic. In fact, as you might read, they didn't want to go at all. But to their credit, they relented and ultimately came. And in fact, the seed of the book was planted on the day in mid-April when I was about to hop on a cab to head out to Pearson Airport to head for London and take up my job. And Isabella handed me a journal with a green cover on it. And she looked at me and said, if you're going to put us through this, you'd better write a book. She'd always had a lot of faith in me as a writer and knew before I did that this was probably the best chance I'd ever have to write a book. And she was right. Best gift, best advice ever. And especially considering all the sacrifice that she was about to go through, it was a remarkably generous thing to do. So it's a memoir told through my eyes. But I hope that it also gives a glimpse into a group of people that I call trailing spouses. Now, that's a term I only learned when I moved to London, which probably has more trailing spouses than any other city on earth when you think about it's such a crossroads and so many people drawn there. Trailing spouses are remarkable people in their own right because they have given up their own jobs, set aside their own career ambitions, allowed their lives to be upended because their spouse has landed an incredible opportunity in the world's greatest city. We met quite a few of them. Uh, we met an opera singer from Australia. We met uh, a writer and former lawyer from New Jersey, a chef from Calgary, and a teacher from Toronto. 
And of course, Isabella, who was a TV uh, producer and director from Toronto and earlier London, Ontario. And we kind of banded together in this impromptu mutual support society because we were all going through pretty much the same experience, uprooted from your normal lives and transported across the pond. Now for the husbands of the trailing spouses, me in this case, well the work is the easy part. You get to cover incredible stories. I was there during an amazing news cycle. It started with the royal wedding, but I went to uh, Cairo for the Arab Spring. I was in Moscow for uh, the Russian elections. I was in Paris. I was in Rome for the change of popes. It was an amazing experience with all kinds of resume shots from, from uh, beauty spots from around the world. But Isabella and Julia didn't get to go on those trips. They were back in London trying to make a life in a rather dumpy flat in a wonderful neighborhood called Belsize Park. Belsize Park, if you know London, it's just south of Hampstead in North London. And it's uh, considered a pretty posh area, beautiful houses. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow lived there when we were there, not that we ever saw her. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, the actress, uh, lived there as well. So there's, it's, a, it's a neighborhood with these grand houses with extraordinary luxury apartments inside and also some dumpy places, which was ours, which had the advantage of just being less crazily overpriced than most of the other alternatives there and being close to Julia's school. But Julia had to deal with coming from the public school in Scarborough, where she'd been going to school, to a, a girls' school in London, all-girls' school where she got to wear, had to wear, a uniform. But somehow, both she and Isabella not only succeeded, but really prevailed. And so I hope that this book will tell the story, or it comes across, about their journey as well, about how they made it special. And they made it special largely through the friendships that they built through the school, which was the Royal School Hampstead. Started in the early, mid-19th century under Queen Victoria, for uh, the daughters of uh, soldiers serving abroad. London can be a pretty tough place at times, but the people at the Royal School, the teachers and the staff and the other students showed us such kindness and they made Julia's transition so much easier and helped us in our transition that it's another key theme of the book that it it shows how it made it all special. And I'll never forget, on the first day of school, Julia, six years old, in her unwanted uniform, still jet-lagged, weeping uncontrollably in the, in the uh, playgrounds, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And this little girl from Toronto named Allison walked up to her and said, Julia, I'll hold your hand. So I was like, ah, oh, gosh, can't get much better than that. So it's um, the title... Falling for London is uh, both uh, literal and metaphorical. The literal part is, well, of course, I fell for London all those years ago, back in the 70s. For Isabella and Julia, it took a little bit longer. There are a few bumps along the road, but now it's an indelible part of our lives. So that's the literal part. The metaphorical part was something that happened in that flat a few months in, where the ceiling fell down on us, which I've since learned is a very common, appear common occurrence in London where you have ceilings with 150-year-old plaster. Happens all the time. So that's the metaphorical part. It is um, also a cautionary tale, not a fairy tale. And I say that because London is an extraordinary city. It has an energy that's pulsing in every neighborhood. 
it is stately, lovely, inspiring, historic. But it's also a tough place to live, challenging place to live. It's a city where you can draw a million people along the banks of the Thames to watch the pageant of a thousand boats during the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. And it's also a place where entrepreneurs will sell royal wedding barf bags for those who can't stomach the spectacle. It, uh, it has a few threads. It's our memoir of learning how to live there and a few observations on the city. It's uh, got a few anecdotes from my stories that I covered. Arab Spring, Russian election, royal wedding. And uh, a few stories of our family travels around Europe. We managed to squeeze in about 10 years worth of family travel in the space of about two years. There was a skiing adventure in the Austrian Alps where we took a few tumbles. There was surfing off the west coast of Ireland where my daughter easily outdid me on the surfboard and looked a lot better in a wetsuit. And in the Cotswolds, there was a memorable, unfortunate, and fragrant dinner of grouse which has become a bit of a family story. So let me just read one little anecdote. This is from covering the royal wedding. A giant grandstand was erected opposite Westminster Abbey, just behind where, where some of the campers had taken up their positions. This is where I would be standing, along with a couple hundred of my good friends in the international media, for four hours or more on the day of the wedding. We had a rehearsal on the eve of the nuptials. Dan and I climbed up the stairs at the rear, past the several large contingents working for the major American broadcasters, past their legions of makeup artists, field producers, sound guys, and gophers. We were renting a strip of space about a meter wide and a few meters deep, just enough for Dan to set up his camera and shoot me with the abbey in view behind. Now, at events like this, one must always be wary of blurting out fuck or cocksucker, because <laughs> likely there's a broadcaster from Argentina or Thailand with a hot microphone standing mere inches away. Those lucky reporters on the scaffolding would be the first live witnesses to the most anticipated event of the day, Kate's appearance in her wedding dress. This particular frock was a closely guarded secret. There were rumors of multiple dresses, a bogus one to throw the tabloids off the track, and a backup one that would be pressed into service if a picture of the genuine article leaked out. As for me, I would be wearing a shockingly pink tie for my four hours of live broadcasting. Julia had picked it out for me at our favorite men's shop in Toronto, Caruso Fine Tailoring on the Danforth. She sweet-talked the garrulous Caruso brothers into throwing it into the bargain for my latest suit purchase. It was not only pink, it was fairly electric pink. But what the hell, it would likely be one of the least ridiculous bits of attire on display. With all the streets closed off, Dan and I hopped on the tube early on the day of the wedding to make our way to the Abbey. Climbing up the stairs to our perch, I noted that a surprising number of reporters were wearing shockingly bright ties, even pink ones. My six-year-old must have known something. The day was overcast, but the rain held off. I had covered political conventions, a papal funeral, and natural disasters, but this was a different kind of exercise. Hours and hours of silliness with dashes of escapist romance. For my first live hit, I jumped in with both feet, noting the numbers of women arriving for the wedding with fascinators, exercises in surrealist architecture atop their heads. Princess Beatrice, daughter of Prince Andrew, was wearing one that became an internet sensation. 
described as a cross between a toilet seat and a weapon of interstellar warfare from Star Trek. Fascinator on stun was one clever online posting, with Captain Kirk pointing the Beatrice toilet seat at some threatening aliens. It's a good thing there's not much wind today, or the breeze would be catching those things and carrying many of London's finest ladies out over the Thames, I observed. In my ear, I could hear only silence from the anchor desk. Then, thanks for that, John. <laughs> These kinds of events are old home week for all the crowned heads of Europe and the world. Most of the Europeans are relatives anyway. They all automatically get invitations and show up in all their finery. With one exception, King Noradam Siamoni of Cambodia regretfully declined, claiming he had a tight and full schedule back home which meant that it was likely the one and only time King Noradam Siamoni's name ever appeared in a British mass-market tabloid, the male snarkily describing him as a shaven-headed former ballet dancer. At just about the time Will and Harry's limousine left Clarence House for the church, the Abbey's bells rang out and the crowd erupted in cheers. Here was an electric moment even for a Republican. Ten massive bells, the largest, weighing 1,500 kilograms, produced a deafening, spine-tingling din. Within a few minutes, the prince and his brother emerged in front of the abbey. The rest of the royals followed in reverse order of seniority, with the queen and Prince Philip last. Then there was Kate. My view from across the street was far inferior to anything seen at home on television, but I could definitely see her dress. It appeared to be white. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Happy to sign any books that you might have. And thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Hey, and you just heard Sean Mellon uh, reading from and launching his new book, Falling for London, here in Kingston at Novel Idea Bookstore on November 1st. Tell you what, let's do this, and I'll be right back. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become... Uh, human, you know, that's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. 
Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca as well. Uh, Coming up, and we'll take us through uh, both this and the second hour today, is the triple launch event called Feed Dog and Friends uh, Kingston Launch, as organized and hosted by Stuart Ross. Up first with his welcome and short reading, and uh, then I believe an introduction to, uh, you'll also, I believe, hear Dale Tracy in this part, but I am not sure about that. I think I broke it up that way. We will see. So uh, here we go. So um, thank you all so much for being here at the Kingston Community House. At uh, an event here last spring, and it was, it's such a fantastic space. I'm so grateful that we can that we can be here. And thank you all for coming. My name is Stuart Ross. I'm in Coburg. I'm an editor and a writer, and uh, I have worked editorially with all three of the writers tonight. We're going to hear from uh, we're going to hear readings from three wildly divergent and wildly amazing writers. Every one of them. And they're all launching a publication. Uh, one of them has come all the way from Nova Scotia, and the other two have made the long journey from Ontario to be here with you tonight. Uh, we're going to be hearing in reverse order. We're going to be hearing from Allison Chisholm, who is launching On the Count of None from Anvil Press, Feed Dog Book Imprint. And we'll be hearing from Alice Burdick who will be reading from Deportment, which is a book of her selected poems. It's her fifth full-length book, and that's from Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And we're going to be starting the evening with uh, the launch of Dale Tracy's first chapbook that is more than four pages. Is that a way of saying it? I I can't say first chapbook, because Michael went and published that, and so I have to say something. First chapbook that's more than four pages. Is that about right? Yeah. Puddles of Skycrest. Um, but we're going to start off with something else just before we begin. And what we'll do, we're just going to have the readings. We're just going to read straight through. And if, depending on the timing and the feeling of things, we might have a little Q&A from the three authors if anyone has any questions, because that can be a pretty fun thing to do. Um, I was a very uh, huge fan when I was a teenager of this writer. Was that me? Who's that? Let's all. <laughs> that goes there, and then I have arrived at my location. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, David McFadden, David W. McFadden, a great Canadian poet. I think he was perhaps one of the um, greatest contemporary, Cana- the greatest contemporary Canadian poet. I would say um, he was publishing from the late 1950s. Until a couple of years ago, um, he uh, was diagnosed in 2010, I think it was, or 2011, 
with uh, aphasia, which um, made its way into Alzheimer's, which made its way into his brain, and he kept writing. He managed to do another two books um, in the earlier years of his Alzheimer's, and he died on June 6th of this year. And uh, I was a huge fan of his when I was a teenager. Um, He was one of the first writers, the first poet I read, and I thought, wow, this stuff is like, it's like people talking, and it's funny, and it's about really serious things, but it's funny. And I was very excited, and I eventually met him, and I eventually edited that six or seven of his books. Uh, and I, what I've been doing since his death is that every workshop or reading that I'm at, I read a little bit of David McFadden at the beginning, just to introduce him to people who might not have heard of him and to keep in the mind of others who have heard of him. So this is, was an amazing little book called Shouting Your Name Down the Well. It contains about 550 haiku and tanka. And I'm going to just sort of flip it open and see... What, uh, what I come up with here. Do you ever feel that you've been sitting in a warm bath all your life? What a jerk I've been. All those hours I've wasted in wrestling with my will. Never again will I sit in Buddhist meditation. <laughs> Is there a page number? I'll read the third poem on whatever page you uh, tell me. 42. Sorry? Is there 42 pages in this book? There are many more than that, and I will read the third poem on page 42. Let's see what happens. It's clear the Scotty were the same people as the Hiberni, so why do so many people ask if you're Irish or Scottish? <laughs> and there was another number that emerged from over here. Number nine. Number page nine. Probably the contents page or something. <laughs> it is, in fact, the dedication page. This this book is dedicated to Merlin Homer the Great, and I mean it. Uh, Merlin is Dave's wife, a fantastic artist herself. Let's hear, let's hear one more. Give me one more page number. Fifteen. Fifteen. Astute thing here. She says, I look my age. Why would she lie like that? It's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that's David McFadden, David L. McFadden. I'll leave this here um, afterwards, too. If you want to come and just have a little browse and send me a side, too. So I'm really, really thrilled that I did have the privilege of publishing this chapbook by Dale Tracy. And I met Dale in this very room uh, last spring when we were launching a chapbook by Allison. Who else will read now? My friend Dale is is a great writer. So that was the first time I heard Dale's work, and I really, really enjoyed it. And then I kept asking her to send me more and more poems over the ensuing months. And then, yeah, it seemed like the right time for a chapbook. And there's a little blurb on the back by Jason Aru, uh, who many of you probably know, another great... Canadian poet, one who lives here in uh, Kingston. And Jason wrote of this, the poems in this book, Inside Dale Tracy's celebration machine, you'll find a feathered pancreas quivering with vibrations and soft strings that will soothe the feelings your feelings bring. <laughs> Tracy speaks through small bronze statues. Please look at the duck while I explain, she writes. Open this book and look at the duck, dear reader, and prepare to be amazed. Her poems are strange and dense, like little chunks of meteorites from the Dale Tracy solar system that have somehow landed on Earth. (laughs) A little bio here. Dale Dale's poetry has appeared or is forthcoming in The Goose, 
Arch, The Weak Shall Inherit the Verse, and the Gatherings Chapbook Series, um, an Art Fest Ontario anthology, Powell's of Skies a Literature Series, and What It Satisfies, a four-poem chat poem from Puddles of Sky. Dale is also the author of a very, very fancy hardcover book, an incredible design, uh, academic book about poetry, which is called With the Witnesses, Poetry, Compassion, and Claimed Experience, published by McGill Queens in 2017. And I think the thing that really attracted me to Dale's poetry is it really, it did feel like a poetry of someone who was inventing their own poetry, inventing their own approach to poetry. And the material in her poems is at once so... Um, something I could connect with so much, but at the same time feels so alien to me, which is a pretty incredible uh, mixture. And there's just so many surprises from line to line, and I would never know where a poem might be going. Uh, and I would just keep taking these different turns. And so I was very excited by her work, and I'm proud to have done this chat book. And let's hear from Dale. Thanks, Stuart, for that really amazing introduction. And I want to say thanks again for making my poems be a thing that I can share here today with this uh, amazing company to read with and amazing company to read to. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, I'm going to start with the first poem in the chapbook. It's called Nothing World. <laughs> Nothing World. Nothing is everything it could be. We live in the human world. Maybe it's like that everywhere. When I open an orange, my eyes bite something fully foreign. If I eat in secret, it's mine forever. Some think we live a secret game smart others made. But aren't we smart strangers who like games ourselves? The next one is called It's Raining Me Too. Every galaxy has a hole at its center. The sun will never turn into a black hole. The earth will never fall into a black hole. That's the kind of thing we know. Someone was thrifty with the skin when they sewed me. Many surfaces complete your body. Something lines your lungs. Under every skin is another one. If people were poems, I'd be a detective. If I were a courier, I'd be a poet. It's perplexing because I am a poet, but don't have your parcel or anything else you asked for. <laughs> the next one's a prose poem called Apoptolis. Uh, Apoptolis means apart from the city. Uh, so it can mean without community. It usually refers to a tragic figure in a, in a tragedy. Um, like a figure in exile. Apoptolis. The scientist looked into the drop of water under his microscope. Instead of the bacteria he expected, he saw a mere image replica of his own colon. He would recognize it anywhere. <laughs> Inside a blue and green parakeet, a seed it ate grew blue and green, like the world for astronauts. It moved through the bird and into the sky. She left her home after a bad year. 
Because she made healing broths from the forest floor, a town she found invited her to stay. She was called the stranger. She lived longer than anyone because of her skill with plants and health. Eventually she was alone and she called herself the stranger when she moved through the trees seeking yarrow and sage. Sometimes she found a person who had strayed like herself from another place. She invited wanderers to her broth and the empty homes. There were too many to call stranger, so she called them what they called themselves. Soon the town was busy. She was its stranger. Design. A man had success written all over him. His suit's tag said so in the code of design. Business succumbed to him. Since this was true, people gave him more of everything. A meal arrived daily, poisoned so lightly, the man learned to know himself as slightly sickly. With each meal, an ostrich plume for brushing crumbs away. The man saved feathers for a gown of downy floss. When he felt least well, he danced it in his arms. Crumbs succumbed to the dress swept across the floor. This next one is one of my very oldest poems, so mm -hmm. I'm happy that it has a home now. <laughs> it's called A Generation Later. Light goes and color. Memories sculpt red for its shape in the loss of its shade. Feelings kept by colors fade, and the next youths ask why they have eyes and try to believe curtains billowed a trapped sunlight or dark bold pupils held the shine round. They smooth yellow as drops, pad it living again and again against their mind's curved walls. Mm. Learning to feel full. The real values as clear as the wind, see-through and strong enough to handle. Still, won't we hollow out ourselves just to hold a solid thing to eye and hand at once? I pluck petals with a dirty garden glove. That daisy's stained like newsprint. Who reads daisies anymore? <laughs> Still, the mouth yellow opens, and not to say I love you. Still, when I drink, my teeth get wet. My eyes gape and light gets in. Don't they get emptier when the pupils grow? I'm full of resources and places to put them. That doesn't mean I know when I feel full. Evolution of work. No, no, a bee explained one time in a waiting room to the ant nearby. Pollen's heavier than you think. The work's romanticized, like farming. The ant in youth escaped a jail of glass and dirt, developing teeth and pinchers over time to scrape and burrow out. It remembered its mouth of glass and nodded to the bee's life. But that was before bees had stings and wings, when they climbed flower stems with will, teeth, and knees, and bears had only to pinch to squeeze out their honeyed veins. Now, in the shifty hours of sun in dew, the bee shimmies a chamois across its stinger. It takes a briefcase that is imaginary, but useful anyway. 
It checks its teeth. It smooths its stripes. It travels to the city. So this is the world of bees, thought the bee. Shelves of candles, jars, soaps. Is a job, it thinks, breathing at a nostalgic nosegay it stores in its briefcase, the smell of climbing into petals. Slow power. With two loose fists, I make my hands a tunnel to look down. Moist, dark, a woman falls through root tines of palm lines. My eye blinks breath, sends a draft drawing her up into fast air free fly until the world dampens open and she floats on her own slow power, her hands inverted wings wetted in the blue. But suddenly they are aflame, the swish swim of this burning unconnected from the wires and strands touching all her bones. Little fishes, those fingers, goldfish fins nipping at each nail, blowing wet gold air bubbles, raising her past the surface, and her hands did not hurt as they set my eyelashes blazing. Um, this one's called Catharsis, and in this poem, all the abstract concepts are capitalized like they were in um, medieval morality plays to make them characters. Catharsis. My feathered pancreas quivers with vibrations in its portion sky of fluids, flaps mildly inside the lined sack tucked into the bottom of boned cage. Sometimes it leads a flight up or down, squeezing my inner sea into a cardinal direction indicated by messages my brain secretes around the legs of pigeons. With weighty ankles, they find their way back along my spine, that steep highway. Pigeons and pancreases do not chirp the same language, and fear might arrive in the hooded and nimble mystery of excitement until the naked eagle of logic sweeps its wingspan around my torso, tearing its talons over cloak and suspense. Fear sits shamed and ordinary. It seeks recovery with party tricks. Logic draws close. Um, so I'll read three newer ones that aren't in the chat book to conclude. The first one's called Zone of Proximal Development. Uh, zone of Proximal Development refers to um, the difference between what a learner can learn by themselves and what a learner can learn with guidance from somebody else. I wait to learn beyond my own possible. But I'm led astray astride the ocean of clues by red herringbone patterns and hateful memes we could write ourselves if we only knew how awry we are. <clears throat> Can your human dignity learn about mine, or is my sense of self in the way? Hmm. We live in a time of popular horror, but arrows don't infect. They are our bones. So watch skeletons dance in gothic golden globes, I guess, and enjoy it. It's not fiction, but it's more fun, the lore, not the bore of surface life. Would your mind mind taking off its coat? Shed one more myelin sheath of belief, and we'll find horror in our very veins. A tale from the mind of a fantasist. Non-potent god that I am to all my bacteria, 
I made alive and kept each day by my compliance with being. I don't make the life I live on, but immortals must cycle energy inward, phasing genes like breath. Where beauty doesn't terrify but blankets, that's my address. It's I who fills splendor's weighty pockets, but with such care I'm surprised by the contents. To my own expense, maybe, but isn't a self-fueling machine the dream? I live like being pulled into a forest by light, and how much it matters I shone in instead of walked, I don't know. Light source glows down to tree roots where luck judgments reach groundwater, a quirk of the irrational. I'm taken by haunted optimism only. Hello, radiance, sense of my sense, flow of my blood. My last one for tonight is called Interest Experience. Sometimes my interest meets my experience. To solve the problem in the comedy of the commons, allow confusion, its convention, but avoid the neat conclusion. When something isn't findable, the random is. I've learned to not see my eyelids, aliener than the head's back, touching what nothing else does. My silent brain processes perceiving my eyes surely do, reading the secrets right in front of them, my eyes, making me ignore what the pupil drags in. A dread risk to miss the twist of my own Mobius strip. My mental model of the world runs futures like dogs run foxes for coats they don't need. Is the universe a piece of a pattern or irrevocable? Without answer, there's to live against making pain only. But some energy is always unavailable. Temperature makes all work. How much heat flows into a poem in luck? If baking luck in the oven, the thermometer should read what? Is pink okay at the center? Is tough luck still edible? <laughs> Thank you. Tracy reading from Celebration Machine, which is being launched tonight. There are copies back there that you can uh, buy later if you want. And it's great to hear the new poems as well. And also the first time ever, I think, that the word alien or was um, uttered at a reading in North America. So that was exciting. Um, thank you. And you just heard uh, Dale Tracy reading from and launching her debut uh, collection of poetry, or chapbook, I should say, debut chapbook of poetry uh, called Celebration Machine. Up next in it, as introduced by, again, Stuart Ross, here is Alice Burdick. And I will just mention that this will run well, I guess it might be the best word, quite a ways into the second hour. So here we go. Here is Alice Burdick. So next up, I'm going to do just a very brief introduction because a very long introduction has been uh, sent in to me from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina for Alice Burdick. I just want to say, though, that Alice Burdick um, is a poet I admire so greatly, and uh, we've been very good friends, very dear friends, for, for a couple of decades. And I have long thought that um, Alice is one of, uh, one of the most important poets in Canada. And uh, over the course of her four books before this one, 
I think gradually Canada was catching up to uh, the kinds of things that Alice does, which is an incredibly wide range of astonishing things. Um, just very briefly, so she's the author of four previous poetry collections. Uh, her work has appeared in many anthologies and magazines. She was shortlisted for the Lemon Hound Poetry Prize in 2014. She's the co-owner of a fantastic indie bookstore called Lexicon Books in uh, Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and that is where she has come um, to visit us and read to us tonight from <laughs> I teach a grammar course at U of T continuing ed and don't tell them that I accepted Alienor or that I just uttered that sentence that I just uttered. This book here is uh, called Deportment and it, uh, the poetry of Alice Burdick and it's sort of a it is a selected poems from her first four collections and various other um, publications of hers. It was uh, selected and appears with an introduction by Alessandro Porco who is a very fine poet himself and a professor in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's originally from Canada and he really wanted to be here for the launches um, and wasn't able to leave uh, he, um, Wilmington. So he sent a little note along and I'm going to read that to you. It's actually not a little note, it's a bit of a longer note. Mm -hmm. But um, so he actually was thinking of the Toronto launch tomorrow, so he makes no mention of Dale, but I'm sure if he knew Dale's work, <laughs> he would have included her in this note. I'm very sorry, friends, that I'm unable to attend this literary celebration. First, my hearty congratulations to Alison Chisholm and Stuart Ross. I am excited to read your new books. And, of course, huzzah to Alice Burdick, who is also launching a new book, a special book. I had the privilege and pleasure of editing and introducing Deportment, the Poetry of Alice Burdick, the latest volume in the Wilfrid Laurier University Press's poetry series. Deportment provides readers with a representative selection of Alice's best poetry since the late 1980s. I'm incredibly proud of our collaboration, and I should add, I owe a debt of gratitude to Stuart, your host, I paid for him to... Uh, uh, paid him to mention me in here, who provided me the encouragement I needed to... Pre proposed the book to Laurier. As we worked to pre prepare this book, Alice and I had joyful discussions back and forth via Skype and email from Ohone Bay, Nova Scotia to Wilmington, North Carolina. We discussed all kinds of things, everyday stuff, um, but I would also, um, the Minuta, Minutia, how do you pronounce that? Minutiae? Minutia. Minutia. It's got an E at the end, so that makes me feel like it's plural. Is it Minutia? Minutia? Yeah. Minutia. Minutia. It's an A at the end. The minutiae? The minutiae. <laughs> the minutiae, thank you, of the 21st century, but I would also ask Alice about her life, her family and friends and children, her work at the bookstore in Lunenburg, or her involvement with small and micropress publishing in Toronto in the 1990s. Our exchanges, however, mostly revolved, as you might expect, around which poems to include or not include in the collection. And I can say with certainty that we might have easily replaced the 35 poems in Department with 35 different Alice Burdick poems, and it would be an equally moving, witty, and adventurous collection. This is a remarkable fact. <laughs> um, there's a, he, he, he quotes from his, um, his, uh, his introduction at length here. But you know what? It's not that much longer. Okay, so he, here he goes. At the very end of my introductory essay to the collection, I wrote the following paragraph, and I feel like it is a fitting way to end this act of ventriloquism. 
Thanks again, Stuart. He says, For 30 years, Burdick has been writing surreal, cerebral, and defiant poetry in an attempt to preserve what she calls the human about us. Inside and out, visible and invisible, singular and irreducibly social. Burdick's writing is grounded in and responsible to the local which includes fa friends, family, and neighbors, but also ghosts, vibrational forces, and subatomic particles. With every image, punning, turn of phrase, or line of verse, Burdick documents the crossing point of her interior life and pressing public concerns, from women's rights to class conflict, conflict and from the Harper government to environmental degradation. As a result, her poetry can be, as George Eliot Clark remarks, as bleak as the shoulders of Peggy's Cove. These are bleak times, after all. With one foot in the dream world and the other in the street, Alice Burdick is one of our best and most civic-minded poets, and that, I assure you, is something we should all take seriously as readers of contemporary Canadian poetry. Congrats and love to you, Alice, Alessandro Porco. Please welcome Alice Burdick. Nice to see you all here. So, so I launched this book actually uh, a, couple, a few days ago in Lindenberg at, at the bookstore with a cellist to take the uh, load off there. Um, and um, but I'm very grateful to be here and in front of such a lovely, warm audience and a nice, warm, cozy house with a great light fixture. And here I go. <laughs> Um, and I'm just going to read them sort of chronologically. Uh, I think I lost a sticky tape somewhere, but um, we'll just go with it. So this is from Voice of Interpreter, which is an early chat book, uh, 93, I think. There's a limit to his input. When he's reached that limit, he has had enough of loud voices around him. He closes his eyes and places his palms over his ears. He breathes deeply. He's on some underwater trip. He's in a small air-filled bubble speeding under the ocean's waves. He likes the feeling of being in deep. He relaxes and can't feel the people around him, shoving against him, gesturing, pushing him urgently. The things floating in slow motion around the bubble illuminate it. Small things and big things, fishes and plants. He sits still, breathing slowly, breathing in the smell of salt. The people around him become upset. They are frightened and they rush around, bumping into each other and slapping him. He is alone, sees only a partial reflection of himself, distorted in the curved glass. A cloud appears around the bubble, thickens into opaque. The people scream and cry. They try to drag him from his chair, but he is immovable. They must leave him behind. On the run out, a woman grabs an expensive pin from his shirt pocket. He doesn't see his reflection anymore. He doesn't know where his eyes are. Outside, the woman is in tears. She watches the cloud of smoke and writes in her schedule book. He has died in a fire surrounded by water. It's very dramatic. <laughs> um, and there's another little prose poem from that, from the chapbook, which was my, actually was my very first one. So, I'll not be queen of the nodding men. My game isn't their game. Their game is full of cologne bottles and runny shit. Their game is golf gone up the hill and right up the fucking tree. Not even close to the sun. 
If I'm wrong about this, well, let me be wrong about this. The nodding men never noticed dissent. My game is walking along a sidewalk and seeing the mannequin hand covered in flesh tone and plastic rings, handcuffs with bendable keys looped around the wrist. Also the dog who always sneezes. By the way, I'll not be queen of anything. It's not hard to figure out why. So don't strain your brain. I stand on the corner of a street somewhere, anywhere, and soon I see the nodding men. They don't always wear suits, but their hands are always tied. It's funny going back in time and <laughs> reading these poems, but I sort of treat it like it's a young, a young writer I know, <laughs> you know? So, um, space program. With the right crutch at the right time, you too can insert your fingers into science and come up with answers. <laughs> Class. Little diplomats with big houses in the higher part of town. A spell of vertigo. Spot on. Flushed. I wrote, I wrote this poem uh, right after my mother died, and it became um, a little book that Nikki Drumballis did, a single poem, covered. I'll give it a go, chance naked, separate again from mainland, always in a place where other space is clear, defined, worked out, water temperature, objects. Now I'll try to see my mother, but she's gone. These white people in funky hats don't think where the water crosses. They cross it and go on a journey. Each place divides into territories. First one place is declared, mine, ours, our people's. Then our place divides and seems like computers. Infinite bits, bites, sections smaller than each eye and a face. I am not distant though I can't be talked to. I can hear quite fucking clearly. I love who I love, and then each of us dies and can't say one more word. One touch, a voice, no voice. A sound, a life, no life, a love. You, I'm dead now. I'm busy. Do you think I'll be alive in the end? I'm almost an element, not the original, but flesh in the moment. Everybody shits, small and big. Even when you know everything, you still shit. This we share. Spread it around, larger serving. Nice hairstyle. It's not a cut. When a man goes to a tree and cuts it down, paid, there's a way. One cut up, degrees. One cut down, angles. A piece comes out and the tree falls. That's how to take something down. You must watch for the shadow or you're under. This is a dead city. Everyone in this neighborhood is a zombie whose code is clear, moral code and faded cottons. There's a difference between the dead and the unliving. I fear a community because I'm a mascot and I sing when others can't hear. Little men make tongue sounds, slurp, slurp. I follow the route of least departure, mostly gone already. 
I can't walk, I can't talk. No way, I have swords, they are hands, and my eyes don't need to look to see. I'm flying or floating, move a half inch above any solid surface. I don't care if you think I smell funny. I want my cunt right on my face, so anyone who's scared can fuck right off. Do you see this happen? With all this, each one of us has a very long story. Ignored by the sky, I want to go back. Worried, ex-friend acts as if this is the place to be. It's not here yet, the boat. Idyllic voyage like the ancients. Like the words some men believe impart wisdom. They just act stupid. Sounds so grand. A castle all the kids build and smash. My hope is that life gives it back. That great feeling, hope. It's time for time to appear. I'll ride it like thought or an actual vehicle into the bright light or some such device. Nothing isn't good. A little further down the road. What to do with bad men. The ring is crying in the bungalow. There's a mystery unfounded on truth. Not to find the way out. Never to know what the jam eaters know, that the words land in different places and mean one thing, dream notice. Bad men line us up for our final photograph. They want to remember us as we were. Talk upstairs loud so you can reach our ears. The sword is sure suspended, as is the swooping sound. They are shooting the globe, leaving pieces scattered for the weary maids. The way to deal with bad men is to get the feathers out of hiding and tickle and tickle their hidden softness. I guess one way. <laughs> to start, I guess. <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's so many things to try. <laughs> uh, uh, Nostrum. I have no secrets, only recollections that grow smaller, edges absorbed by wet omniscience. Specific times of joy. Buy butter, hold it on an open wound. How you agitate your agoraphobic eyes away from the evidence. A face to see, clear, a memory. Well, I've had joy, specific times, but it all falls down into the crevice of etiquette. Toddlers at two and 62 teeter down the road. Adult bowed head, staring is rude. Adult men lick balls of cold fat perched on cones, as experience would dictate. <laughs> I live in a sort of touristy area, as I think you all do. There's a lot of ice cream shops. Morse <laughs> um, code bobble. When will I become a more becoming idiot box? Fraught with choristers, this one road is paved over and over again. It will soon be a stream instead. Some horses snicker near the fence at our clumsy tongings of iced babyhood. They learn to stand immediately, not like us, with our giant and frail pins. Wimps fear empty floors. 
steady lump of beet out in the fields, roasting. The teeth on the politician are flecked with sweet kernels of local corn. Fan the sweating horse near the fence. We will hold our trousers high with enigmatic grace. All these flutters are broken. Light water is soapy with nodules of trust. Intention wipes out memoirs as in a British tongue, a time machine, a boast for time and its species. Walk on, water. Walk down treaties, working for the people who have friends and comrades. Good for you for not driving over my legs. Thanks, it's sweet of you. This is Mahone Bay Rhapsody. Stern discussions, stern discussions of possible weights, glossy stains on the older, older floors, air that moves faster than the machinery fails, the friendly faces in translation, long-term blank out, please tickle my neck. Things on lawns, trees exploding from a metal round, how to determine the speed of demolition? Pasta dries at its own rate, just flour and water. Teeth like noodles scattered on the floor, fling the air onto the water, a star on the firmament, lake of speeds, torsion of blinking torsos, wax and red tables, ceramic eyes and ears, noses that smell the hope exhaled from glass doors, wooden salvage roads, the roots into the news, the waves, the waves of cold water. What do you do? When do you stop? How long would you go to retrieve a body, a human you know, declared missing, meaning maybe a misstep, a piece of ice broken and afloat, even a small place that hooks onto the edge of the continent like that rusty fish catcher. Actual child voices out in the streets raised above the gracious murmurs of the genteel boiled wool crowd. I'd so like to connect whatever the age, but often the looks veer towards distaste, disdain, a tough look to receive when convincing a small child not to wail like a kettle on boil. Mm -hmm. Delicious occasional outings, walking at the speed to which I was once accustomed, thinking of space and words, no caution. How to disturb the melting snow. Tender, patient soil waits for months on end barely present, if possible, in mixed-use spaces. I owe you, I owe me, a hot bobbing past. Cars fill up on gas and let gas out into the air floating above the bay. Mound of snow hides like a government information blackout. Do not even think about what lies below the crusting snow. Both crawling vehicles and those that speed won't stop at crosswalks for crossing families. A framed opening into the familiar symbols and signals of the town. Who are they? The entire community and the singular <coughs> entities. The big metal thing stops next to the plank of concrete and the water flesh creatures scramble out and skip up the wooden boards through glass, metal, plaster, and a whole plot's worth of wood. We can all say we live in the woods still. Decimated and reassembled, no sap, but woods still made singular. 
What are the cells saying? We wonder how we breathe. The nose stops working if there's too much self-reflection. Space changes overall. Round, empty, red-bearded, red-beaded pupil. <laughs> Rockabilly in an empty room. Black, almost Amish balance of wood and color. High contrast with the ornate gingerbread that eats this town. A walk down the pretty streets, watching the cannibalistic fairy tale tricksters in conservative outerwear, mowing, primping, tidying. Do you understand the wonder of conversation? I enjoy the sound of a couple talking, their venture a possible stomach ache, but a venture even so. Howl at the wind, trick it into a calm breeze. The ducks, too, live here all year. They swim in the water and walk on the ice. I feel like there's a lot of uh, talking about uh, body functions and brain connections and stuff, and it, it's already come up a few times in your poems and, and mine. So, Dawn, are that going to read Breeds Heart Zombies? <laughs> this is for you, Dawn. <laughs> I didn't know you when I wrote this, but now I do. Okay, Breeds Heart Zombies. We think only what our brains allow. Our zombies are in control. Slip once and they scatter, afraid of the fire of happenstance. Righted, they lurch their way through the repetitive day. And we are proud of ourselves, that we hardly know what we're made of from where our impulses reach and grasp and hang our brain pan hats. I taste cherries, I taste bees. They rode on the cherries into my mouth, which opened to receive them due to the zombies who love a parade of venom, stingers, and fuzz. All the mystery is inside here in our dark and hard hat heads. All right, and uh, just a couple more. Uh, because Remembrance Day was a couple of days ago, I'll read uh, the, my Remembrance Day poem. <laughs> Stuart also reminded me of that the other night. So, Remem Remembrance Day 2011. Horse declamations in the water make bubbles. Language bubbles back into its origins. Some insensible murmur, noting the way waves feel. Nothing more. To remember on a particular day means the pomp must be a flood of memory, not nostalgia. Not nostalgia for an absent past. Some hologram of delusion. Hope for a changed origin some glory. Some glory makes the flowers wilt, plastic ocean of red, commitment to proud death. We want there to be a reason we can like. We want the dead we know to count as we don't count the dead we don't. And uh, the last poem is um, from, from Book of Short Sentences. I think the other one was too, but um, 
Now this is sort of a continuing poem, but I'll just read this part of it because it showed up. <laughs> the records hold. Part one. If I could see the arguments as funny, a slapstick repetition, then the cast iron frying pan off the head, the bodily shaking, the hair pulling, the screams, the pushes, the shoves, the throwing, slaps, insults, derision, intimidation. It would all be hilarious. A clicking Laurel and Hardy caper. And the times in shelters, giant wad of snot between seat cushions, locking doors, one-way windows, the industrial milk machine, shared bedrooms and showers. Like camp, such fun venues. I could laugh and recall my family's antics. I walked around Toronto in an endless escape. I could not stop, had to go fast walking as streetcars clunked past. Beery smell of bars, doors open, pool halls drifting smoke, ladies welcome. The others on the streets, the old and very young. I walked for hours, fucked off from school, could not stand enclosure for long. Men in cars pulled over, windows rolled down. Do you want a ride? I always shook my head as I linked this question to what I'd known for a long time. The wandering fingers and hands of strange men on streetcars and parks, the dangerous world of the question. Like the man who leapt out as I walked home one afternoon, choked me with my scarf on a busy street. I remember that and also all the cars that didn't stop, all the people who watched and didn't shout. Were they in shock like me? Or did they think boyfriend, girlfriend, an acceptable fight? I twisted away, ran to a garage, and hid till he raved off. But the walks continued. I never gave him up. I never will. I walked and stopped at dirty, sad donut shops, stepped in, and the down customers looked up. One time, I visited my friend Jeannie in the donut shop, where she worked, and a customer told me I looked like Benazir Budo. At other times, people said Natasha Kinski, Alanis Morissette, Ingrid Bergman, Aztec face mask. To them, I had an interchangeable head. Cumulative comments about passionate redheads, my ass, my breasts, my mouth, my life. A chorus of incoherent sounds related to all these things. It's a bit of a downer note to end on, <laughs> but that's where it's going to end. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you very much. verdict reading from a department and um, when I, I worked at iWeekly uh, some years ago and there was a, another um, s uh, staff person who worked there and I really had a crush on her and <laughs> a whole bunch of us went up for beers after and she said, you, you remind me of um, that actor John Lovitz <laughs> so anyway, I never got compared to Nastasia Kinski by that uh, I just, uh, I don't know why that poem brought that back to me it was heartbreaking um, John Lovitz kills himself in the first three minutes of the movie Happiness, I think it is. So he's a great person to be compared to. Um, so uh, I, I edited the first four books by Alice Burdick, and it was, um, 
amazing to hear tonight in the selection that Alessandro Porco put forth to hear all of those poems from all of those years talking to each other and they're, they're, it's, a, it's like a cohesive body of work it was amazing so thank you and you just heard uh, Alice Burdick uh, reading from and Kingston launching her new book called Deportment uh, and welcome to now into this second hour of today's show. It's about 5, almost 5.12, and you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. Just the usual hourly announcement in this hour as well. Occasionally some poetry, music, or spoken word may contain strong language, but all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So let's just go ahead and continue with the event uh, begun in the first hour. Up next in that triple launch event called Feed Dog and Friends Kingston Launch. Again, as organized, hosted, and emceed by Stuart Ross. Here is, with his introduction to her, Allison Chisholm. So the final... Um, writer presenting work tonight is Alison Chisholm and her book is called On the Count of None and it's out from Anvil Press's relatively recent imprint a feed dog book which I am the editor of so the first book was by uh, Steve Van Wright and the next one was by Jamie Forsyth and this is the third one and it's the first book in the imprint that is a first book by uh, the writer and it was a real thrill working with Allison on this. Um, Allison sort of discussed, I don't know when she began reading poetry, but she only began writing poetry a few years ago. And, uh, and so as a lot of these poems were coming together, Allison was making all these incredible discoveries of writers that she really enjoyed and who were, um, that she was sort of talking to through her poems and, and letting influence her. And all that kind of frenetic um, creative, creative energy was so amazing and watching it uh, burble through in the, in the poems was such a, a pleasure. And also, also an incredibly meticulous craftsperson. And some of these poems are so tiny and yet um, she worked so meticulously on each line and, and, and each line break and so particular. It was, it was a real pleasure um, to watch how you worked. Um, there's a few little blurbs on the back here, and one of them is from Jamie Forsyth. And she said, Allison Chisholm introduces us to a world where things are at once placed in careful order and blown delightfully apart. And Nelson Ball, who's a great Canadian poet, a contemporary of Dave McFadden's, was in Paris, Ontario, he said, There are lots of rewards among these lines. I like especially the poems that implicitly and pointed, pointedly criticize our culture, and I love Allison's deadpan humor. And then Alice Burdick, a poet whose work you might be familiar with, <laughs> wrote, Allison's poems are plain-talking spirals of wit and description. She walks the reader along a path of surprises, a straightforward line steps to another straightforward line, but getting there involves Escher-like angles. What a great first book, full of a persuasive and clear form of surrealism. Exclamation mark. <laughs> and a little bit of bi a short bio note on Allison. Allison was born in Coburg and lives in Kingston. She played glockenspiel in the Hawaiian dream pop band, Scub. <laughs> Her poetry has appeared in the Northern Testicle Review and many other dignified literary <laughs> magazines, um, including Train, a journal of investigation, and um, uh, uh, 
was that a poem? It's a chat poem. Chat poem uh, from Puddles of Sky Press called The Dollhouse. Her chat book, published by My Proper Tales Press um, last year. Oh, so it wasn't this past spring that we were here. When the heck were we here? Was it two, two years ago? It was ago? two years ago. It's been two years. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, that was called On the Count of One, and that was published in 2017 by Proper Tales Press. Allison was very frustrated that she used the one great title idea on that chat book, On the Count of One, until she came up with the idea of calling her book On the Count of None. So I thought that was pretty good. Allison, either rather enigmatically, is the curator of the Museum of Tiny Objects, and this will be the third night in a row that I've heard Allison read, and the first two are so wildly different, I'm looking forward to seeing what she has for us tonight. The delicate thing. I keep thinking about how it felt to stand beside you on that quiet morning with the coffee brewing and the water boiling and the eggs tapping and you avoiding my stretched out hand with your stretched out truth. It gets ground up in your kitchen with each drawer open and the, the throats clearing and the eyes lowering and the nostrils flaring and the cheeks flushing and the doors slamming and the darkness deepening and the dust stirring and the clouds bursting and the thunder roaring. It's nice to stand beside you. So I wanted to, um, to say thank you for, everyone for coming out. And this is my book. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks. It's so great to see my friends and my family and my colleagues and um, members of my secret writing society <laughs> amongst all of these great people tonight. Um, so the, the next poem I'll read, it's called The Dollhouse. And, uh, Throughout this book, there is a, a narrative concerning a character named Ellen. And so I think I'll read uh, one of the, the, the poems that introduces Ellen. So, The Dollhouse. Within the variability of everything, our right-hand lady, Ellen, readjusts the value of the thing. Does she have a full scope of the situation? Has she accounted for all of the details? In her mind, a day is seven hours, and she figures it will take five days. Here in this house, she has learned a good business lesson, and one day a statue may be carved in her likeness. A surgeon, a neurologist, a historian, and a dancer, she is almost always any of these things. In staff meetings and washroom stalls, Ellen forms a persuasive stance. Decisive moves at precise locations have helped to soften the sharpest edges. In Act 3, Ellen will suppress a smile, strike a match, and submit her final notice before slipping into the shadows. <clears throat> Sanskrit. Millions of believers in four imaginary pairs of shoes slip past doorways, stirring dust beneath their feet. This next poem is called Thievery. A dream atmosphere is achieved at the apex, stolen from a secure cargo area. 
disarmed by a police officer, bitter masterminds who, guarded from birth, abscond with curiosities and wonders, worth rubies and jewels, sapphire and diamonds, or at least one Canadian dollar. <laughs> um, this next poem I'd like to dedicate to my friend Chris, whose birthday was on the weekend. And he was adamant that nobody acknowledged. Thought <laughs> <laughs> this would be the great and perfect moment to read a poem to him. <laughs> and uh, in fact, it is um, the poem is called Scorpio, and uh, and within this book there are uh, there's there's horoscopes. So there are twelve poems, um, one for each of the of the astrological signs. Uh, which explains why on the cover there is um, a constellation of a pair of scissors. And so these are kind of a surreal spin. <laughs> you know, the, the scissor constellation. You, you might see it tonight as you walk home. Um, so this poem then is for Chris, if I can find it. Man, Michael told me to mark these. <laughs> Scorpio. All right, Chris. Okay. Um, avoid confrontation with someone with whom you share controversial ideas. Instead, try to appeal to a small person in a quiet river or a clan of Viking descendants. The key to your happiness is in the mouth of the zoologist a plumber's tool belt or old reliable standbys. Witness cosmic activity in the most sensitive area of your chart. <laughs> there you go. Think about that. <laughs> uh, so this, this poem is called Integers and Demmed Rights, and I think it kind of ties into the theme that was coming up this evening with um, you know, the brain and the body. So, integers and dendrites. Your stoned brain was right. Until the next feeding, we all sat in anticipation like a third-order neuron before synapsing in the thalamus. When you wake, you eat, full of words and motor impulses, integers and dendrites whose innervations stop short of stimulation. Woman does backflip before slipping into shadows. Dear Abby, how do I measure <laughs> some level of risk, a comfortable silence, and a single sailing season? How, Abby, do I wrestle this pirate stronghold, an instant foreboding and a legendary creature? Dear, dear Abby, is there a fine line between a day-long battle and a misty morning? Abby. Sun filters through leaves, snow covers all in sight. I hear popping and crackling as mom drops bacon into the pan. Life is an expenditure and I need some capital. Sincerely, Ellen. This next poem, it's called Upper Crest and I wrote it for myself on my birthday. And it's, so it's 
dedicated to me. <laughs> Upper crest for Alice. Uh, <laughs> when the cooler climates came, I gave up all modern, <laughs> modern conveniences. In moonlit nights and along Georgian Bay, I traded in my well-groomed thoughts for wild abandon, bare instincts, and a sporting interest. Tucked away in canyons and around the archipelago, I earned a decent grade mapping flights, skinning hides, charting stars. I kept a clean camp. I improvised a fishing hook. The upper crests of the escarpment scraped the sky. Cliffs framed the shores, and I removed my shoes and socks to be born again in the grotto. And this next poem is a poem I wrote for Michael. And it's called Money in the Meter. And in fact, this book is, is, is for Michael. And, um, and every time I was writing a poem, it would never be weird enough for Michael. <laughs> so I was just encouraged to write weirder and weirder. And <laughs> Which explains <laughs> Money in the Meter. In accordance with your core principles, my job has been to keep you alive. Hardly permissible under law, but from the business side of things, this affiliation has been lucrative for both of us. When I cannot find you, I know where to look. Between our resting oars, beneath our neighbor's prying eyes, within the curtain's creases, next to the fallen markers, along the streets with these warm bodies. Inside each of these dimensions, you deliver on your calling. Overheard by others, our steady breaths, our pumping blood, electrical impulses, and chemical reactions. <laughs> this is another poem I wrote about myself. <laughs> the thing about me. This may be of interest to no one. Tiny variations and my stray gray hairs stoop an olive shoulder. Larger and stronger, my sudden leaps grasp at revelation. My clenched fists and your flattened breaths are our black Cadillacs. It's been one week. I still suspect we liveth and believeth. Shifts in style and an old suede shoe? I nod yes. Seven days after my eureka moment, a period of maximum confusion. It takes bodies for one final thrust to soften the blow. Where the crowds are, one drawn out note is born again. Sternly and profoundly, I advise a minor deviation. My first encounter bespeaks deceit and higher honor. A short snooze in your obscure origins follow us and bother us. Additional considerations, a love poem for Michael, a moored emotion. A book I never read, and these tiny objects trophy my to-do list. Secretly and tr truthfully, your esteem is better than okay. Hands down, fresh shouts follow me around. A few blocks over, a sparkling version of myself sits with a quiet intensity. 
who besides me? You at the helm, wind blown and wayward, a dark sky observer. Below these decks, address these hands, disorderly and ungloved, heavy-handed but adrift, afoot, abreast, a sacker of cities, capsized or baptized, I take the fall. So this is another uh, Ellen poem, The Dollhouse. Ellen, all at sea, begs us to tell her what we want, a home in the country, a modest house in the city, the questions drum in head and heart, and Ellen, sitting at the piano, plays a chord to clear the air. Until, until long after midnight and well before the ending note, Ellen, buried in thought, is mapping flights and mooring boats. Between the sofa and side door and nearer to the front window, a bookcase. Ellen classifies her showily bound books. Ellen adds her na our names to her do-to list. Secretly and truthfully, Ellen draws a heavy breath. Alone in the room, and before the curtains draw, Ellen slows the tempo, extends the solo, and hums a final note. <coughs> this poem is called The Precious Order of Things, and it's written after a Lisa Jarnot poem. On this most perfect hill with these most perfect dogs, I found the perfect parliament. In these most perfect pockets, I found the perfect sentiment. Within an almost perfect stethoscope, I heard a perfect chorus. Next to a perfect stream, a flawless source. Through hoops of perfect fire, I earned a decent grade. How terrific it is to find an already perfect blueprint. A perfect whistle, a perfect watchmaker, a perfect watch. Across a perfect street, an orange cat licks a wounded paw. The streetlights flicker on and off. A crumpled page of yesterday's paper is swept across your feet. You bend down and pick it up. A perfect editorial. Between you and me, a perfect publication. Next to a perfect stream, a table. A pawn, a steady table, a pawn. Anoint the king, attack the bishop. Blindfold the perfect child. Shoplift the perfect present. Exchange the perfect, a perfect queen, a perfect knight, a perfect rook upon. Perfect the perfect adjective to write the perfect poem. And this is the final poem, and it's, uh, it's the epilogue to the book. So I just want to thank everyone again for coming in. Um, so it's called Epilogue. On the forestage, Ellen in the dimness, quietly dressed. A match is struck, a lamp is lit, the kitchen table brightens, off stage and under one's breath, a sigh escaped. Thank you. Mm. Great, and different from the previous two nights. <laughs> Great selection. Thank you so much, Allison. Um, so you would think that the evening is over at this point. Um, you might be right. If you leave, then it will be over for you, at least this part, this 99 York Street part of the evening. But what I was thinking we could do 
is uh, if we take, there's all sorts of great munchies back there. There's also some books, so if you're wandering or you go, I just came here, it was completely free. These three amazing poets came and read, and these three amazing presses published their things, and how can I support such ventures? I could buy one to three books, and, uh, and that, would, that would help, and that would be really good. And then you can have some things to munch. You can buy a book if you want, or two, or three. And then I thought, if the writer's okay with it, if there's any of you who would like to stick around in like five minutes, we'll just do like a ten-minute Q&A, because all these questions came to my mind as I heard the three writers um, read their work. So we'll just have a quick uh, ten-minute Q&A in five minutes for those who would like to stick around, and I hope you will. But first, thank you all so much. Thanks to Eugene for recording. Thanks to the Kingston Community House for uh, having us here. So have something to eat, check out the books, and, and come back for just a, a brief Q&A. There's coffee downstairs. And you just heard uh, Alison Chisholm uh, reading from and launching her debut collection of poetry uh, called, uh, full collection of poetry, I should say, call, and it was called On the Count of None. And up next, we're going to ha- go ahead and jump uh, right into that Q&A uh, portion of the evening that Stuart just mentioned, and here it is. <laughs> Okay, so uh, have yourself a seat there. Uh, the munchies will be, and uh, take some munchies with you. Take some pretzels, and um, and we can go back and get some more after. Take some munchies with you. And uh, I can't even figure out how my camera works, so I'll figure that out later. Okay, so this is amazing that like half of you at least stayed. This is so fantastic. And thank you again for um, coming out tonight. Um, this has been uh, so great to see an audience, and I know some of you, and many of you I do not know. So that's very exciting. So. Here we have these three poets, and you just heard them read. We have Alice Burdick, Alison Chisholm, and Dale Tracy. And um, I don't know, um, if, does anyone, does any um, question come to mind immediately that you wanted to ask? They, they could be things like, do you um, use paper clips or scotch tape? Or they could be, what did that poem mean? I'm not saying you'll get an answer, but uh, they, might see what, they might say, what does mean mean? So we don't know. But any, any questions that come to, to come to mind as you're listening tonight? I had a quick question for Allison about the, you mentioned that the narrative of the character named Ellen yeah. that runs through. And I'm just right. wondering if, uh, how that came about. Was that something that, the, right. did you have those already formed? Or did the actual construction of a book kind of lead mm-hmm. you more into it? Right, yeah. I, um, so actually, the, the very first thing that was published was Michael published it, The Dollhouse that one single poem and it's about a character named Alan and um, inspired by (laughs) the dollhouse the play by uh, Hendrik Ibsen yeah right and so so I I just like after I wrote that I was like yeah (laughs) and then and then I um, and Stuart had kind of given me a bit of prompting that it would be interesting to kind of play around with this concept and so I really liked the formula that I used, so I wrote more the dollhouse poems and in, involved the character Ellen. And also I was really inspired by, I just loved like looking through the play, the script, and the, um, the stage directions. I just love the description, so actually it's, it kind of borrows that mm. formula. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Thanks. Anything else? 
I'll ask a question of all three of you. It's something I'm curious about because it's important to me as a poet. I'm curious about other people's processes. But um, can you just tell me sort of generally with your the average poem you write, not that any of you write poems that are average, but what I mean is the, the evil poem, how you begin writing a poem. Maybe each of you can answer. Start over here with Dale. I have three different ways of beginning a poem. <laughs> so, one way is I walk a lot, and when I walk, sometimes mm-hmm. an idea will occur to me, or a word, or a phrase, or a few words will just pop into my head, and then I'll write the whole poem in my head, and then walk really fast until I get to where the pen and paper is and write it down. <laughs> uh, uh, a second way is that I read random articles online or just what I'm reading for my work, and uh, I'll hit something interesting like uh, Apocalypse or um, Zone of Proximal Development, and I'll think, well, it's such an interesting thing that I just learned, and I'll end up with a poem about it. Uh, the third way is I have really great dreams, um, unless I'm too busy, and then I dream that I'm stuck living in a residence. It's like high school. <laughs> I just do that over and over and over again. But if I'm not too busy, then I have amazing dreams, and then I wake up and I write it down, and I work it into something that ends up being a poem. Uh-huh. Thank you. What about you, Allison? I have a process where I collect little scraps of things, like interesting um, expressions or concepts, and usually I make a list. And then it just seems that I have this collection, and it, it's not hard at that point, I think, to just like to put some pieces together. Hmm. Yeah. Scraps. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> Alice. I just try to find some time to... <laughs> the walking thing does happen a lot, though. I find that's a good time to, to think and uh, where things just seem to suddenly present themselves. And uh, uh, so that does happen. Um, and I just keep a... I do keep a little notebook, so as things come to mind or I overhear things okay. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. What did somebody... Oh, yeah, even this morning, I, I, I met with a really old friend, like uh, somebody who's known me since I was a baby, like basically an auntie, but I haven't seen her for four or five years. And when she, she said something that, about kids and how they were tough and rumble. I mean, you say, <laughs> I was like, I like that in there. Mm. You know, but, uh, yeah, people say all kinds of interesting things. Okay. Yeah. I like that none of you write because you have an idea of something you want to write about. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least you didn't, you didn't say that. <laughs> oh, you want to add that? Occasion that does, that does happen. Yeah. yeah, but it's not usually, sometimes just deadlines help also. Yeah. Somebody's like, you got to do something. <laughs> okay, yeah. thanks. Yeah. thanks. Yeah. Anyone else have any other questions there? Alice, you mentioned that some of your poems that you're reading were from like earlier chapbooks. Yeah. Have they been like collected into a trade book as well, or were they just um, coming from chapbooks? And if so, how does that feel like having yeah. poems from chapbooks from a long time ago or from a while ago finally seeing publication in a trade? Yeah. So some of the the poems uh, from early, it's mainly early, uh, either didn't make it into a chapbook. So there's a couple there that were just from a, a sort of manuscripts that I've been working on. Um, and then the, that sort of the, the two prose poems about the bubble and the underwater were from uh, my first one. It feels it feels nice. It does feel like I'm reading somebody else a little bit um, because it's it, that's. Uh, that's a long. That's a long time ago. For you know, it was. It was. I was just sort of starting and feeling 
uh, okay about it. <laughs> but I like it. I like this is sort of a friend. It's like having a, a, an earlier version of yourself as a friend, and I want to represent that person well. And I value it. At first, it was kind of mortifying, though. There were there were some moments where, and there were some poems I said, no, I don't think that should ever see see print. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I do like that there's this arc in, in time and feel with the poems, too. But I love Chap books. And I, love, and I think some of them, like some of those, were just falling, are falling apart, too. Some of the very early ones are kind of, or I don't even know where some of them are. I don't even have a copy of Fun Venue. You don't? No. I'll sell I gave you mine. Yeah. <laughs> Is it signed? Bindings coming across. Yeah. That's construction paper or something. That's construction right? paper. And I think it had like a yeah, so gaffer, like painter's tape or something binding so it. It's destined to disintegrate. It's, yeah, it's like, yeah, the fast road. Into, yeah. I'll give you my copy of my when I. <laughs> It's one of the 60 boxes in my basement. <laughs> you can have it. Well, yeah. You should have it. It will be a box. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I have a question just about in your creation creation process. Do you read your poems in your head or read them aloud? And how does that mm. might interplay with how you interact with the poems? And, and also the difference between reading it aloud here to people. So just, just the, that process of mm-hmm. louder in, internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, actually, that question just made me think that Alice, your poem, The Remembrance Day when you read it, it I, I felt like I could interpret it differently than when I read it mm-hmm. to myself. Yeah, I often find yeah. that with, with poems, too. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you hear the author or somebody else read somebody's poem, it, it gets into your head in a yes. different way than yeah. how your eyes would direct it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It could be useful or not. <laughs> or it's also, like, it depends also on the poem, too. Like, there's uh, there's so many, I would, I would really, it would, I don't know if I've ever, like, a visual poem, that would be really something amazing to hear read wow. out loud. Because yeah. sometimes people will read it and they'll describe the shape of it or whatever. You're like, oh. <laughs> but it doesn't matter as much as your eyes do in that case. Mm-hmm. I don't ever read my poems out loud until I'm going to read them at something like this and I practice. Mm. And so it's weird because a lot of them are about performance, but I don't think of them about being out loud Mm. at all. Mm. Wow. I um, I've recently like started really like reading out loud, and so I think that influences how I write a poem now. Do you mean you're reading your own work yeah, as you're yeah, writing yeah, like, it, or reading other? Um, like I like because because I've been going to like the open mic nights, hmm. and I enjoy sharing my work, and so I think that uh, I'm thinking about how it's going to sound when I write it. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks. I like that a lot more now. Actually, yeah. it's something over the past few years. I think it's because I don't. I don't, don't want to say I don't care as much because I care a lot. <laughs> but I, I also I don't. Uh, I, I feel I, I'm more confident about it, and I know some people are going to like it, some people aren't. So I might as well just have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. As with yeah. The, like music or something. Right. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, and Bob. You had a question. Yeah. I did, and they all just answered it. But I have a new one. Okay. <laughs> My question was going to be about whether they write primarily just for the page or if they write to perform it or what mm-hmm. and, and they really kind of answered that sort of but I sort have of. a new question for oh, okay. us uh, <laughs> you said that before at the launch you launched with a cello yes which 
some of us may know is a, a musical instrument. Uh, and, and, and as a writer who has been performing with musicians for decades, uh, I'm, I'm always curious about other writers. You sounded like the performing with a cello wasn't something you always do. And, and so I'm curious about how you feel about mm. performing your work with music or without a musician. Oh yeah. Uh, with me, and like I don't have someone uh, accompany me. I, I, I have a collaboration with musicians, and and I find it wonderfully productive. But it's also a lot more work sometimes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, having performed at least once with a cello, uh, how you feel about that? Is is that good or bad, or just some a different mode? It's 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 great. I mean, uh, so there's an ongoing series that I, I have at the bookstore that I I'm co-owner mm -hmm. of in Lindenberg, which is called the Lexicon Salon, <laughs> and it's so it's a combination of uh, music and poetry, and it's always a different uh, musician mm -hmm. type of musician. So it's been there's been a saxophonist and a poet. There's been a percussionist and a poet. There's been a guitar. Uh, yeah, and then and I've actually worked with this guy Norm Adams before. Mm -hmm. uh, he's he's a really great improvisational uh, musician. He organizes a lot of stuff. So I think it was much more comfortable this time than the last time we, that we did it, which was for the launch of my previous book, because um, we're used to each other's cues. But it is definitely, I would say, it's a collaboration, even though I already have my words in hand. Mm -hmm. But pacing is a little different. I pause, he pauses, he, sometimes he plays, sometimes he doesn't. It's a different animal, and I think sometimes people who aren't as used to hearing poetry are more comfortable mm -hmm. hearing it in that mode because it becomes a sound thing. And uh, there's something sometimes that music does where it transmits into your, again, like <laughs> hearing things. It, it transmits into your ears and in your mind in a different way if you hear the music along with it. You can think of it more as a lyrical thing, even if you read the poem and people might be like, that's not a, there's nothing <laughs> lyrical about that poem. <laughs> suddenly it has a lyric. Or suddenly the sound of it is interesting to people. Well, do you find that, for decades now, thought what I do is a jazz thing, and and I'm wondering if you kind of feel that way too. What I mean by a jazz thing is like at jazz musicians, you're listening to the musician and the musicians listening to yes. you and you're reacting to each other yeah. as opposed to something that's rigidly scored. Yes. Yeah. There's there's a I I'll will I'll will adjust to each other. Yeah. A lot. We'll listen to each other, and we'll use silence, too. Yeah. As you were asking more questions, I was thinking of saying, we're going to revoke your White House press pass. If, um, <laughs> um, anyway, those, those uh, great questions. Thank you. <laughs> Eric, you had something you wanted to add. Um, yeah, although um, I think the started to an answer on, on that already, talking about the musicians locally in Lundberg. So how has where you uh, live or have lived um, affected your writing, either in, not just like the landscape or anything, but, but socially, um, the people that you get to associate with in Kingston or Lunenburg or whatever. Allison, why don't you start on that one? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, well, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it just made me think that I feel really like, um, it feels very fortunate to, to have the opportunity to live in Kingston where I feel supported by a lot of different communities 
that cultivate the arts, even if it's not even just writing, right? Like soulful singing. And um, I belong to a writing group. A secret writing group. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and then there's, there's just a lot in the community, right? Like going out to Bruce's evenings every month. So I think that it's just, yeah, it just cultivates and uh, I feel supported that way. So I, I make, it's making me think, I wonder what it would be like living in another community. I, I, I don't think I would have produced this book. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You think you would have produced a book? Or just you mean that you'd uh, produce a different book? I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Because I actually didn't start writing until, um, you know, like I got to know Nick and Christine. And, of course, Michael has always been encouraging that. But through meeting Stuart also, like early on when I started writing. So maybe there'd be no book. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Alice, what about you? Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I've looked at it a lot of different places. I lived out west, and uh, I feel like the people you get to be in contact with makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nature of the place that you're in, uh, living in Toronto, um, I grew up there. Um, there's a lot of noise and it's busy. There's a speed. There's a real. There's a real fast speed. There's a lot of choreography, moving around people, and, and I think a lot of the poetry from that time reflects that. This rhythm, and then and then when I moved out east, suddenly there was a lot of space. And I had to get used to that, and it was very lonely uh, too. And it became really self-reflective and uh, spooked out, but happy <laughs> by nature. Uh, yeah, but it always affects where what you write. There, I, I find it affects where what I write, and uh, yeah, yeah. Olinburg is a really great place to be too. It's a it's a very small place, like uh, twenty five hundred people yeah. on a good day. <laughs> on a, well, not a good day. <laughs> bad day. <laughs> There's um, and a lot of music and, and visual arts, and uh, but so there's a lot happening, and that does feel encouraging too. Yeah. Thanks. What are you doing? Um, I think that for me, the biggest effect is that I've met so many people here who have expressed an interest in my poetry or taken me seriously as somebody who writes poetry. That it gave me the feeling that I could keep writing poetry, that it was worth doing, that I should put time into, it, and so that made all the difference in making mm-hmm. it happen. I'm also part of a secret writing group, but not necessarily the same one as Alice. No, it's a very safe room. So. <laughs> um, I think also because I my job, um, I have to be kind of in public and kind of a public person. Um, that affects my poetry because a lot of my poetry is about what doesn't mean to be who I am, but also in public because it doesn't fit very nicely and. Um, that might go along with why I don't read them aloud, and it's weird that they're both being aloud. Um, so that I, I think that affects it too. Hmm. Yeah, thanks. Well, that raises another question. You've had your okay. Say, go ahead. No, uh, just from from what you said, Dale. Um, who? This is for all of you. I, I said Dale's name. Um, who? Is performing your poetry? I, I ask that because I I learned. A hundred years ago, 
uh, that it's much more comfortable to be in rule. And so there's me sitting here now, and that guy who gets up and performs my poetry is Bob the Poet Performer. And, and I'm wondering, do you sort of go into role like that, or is it just you, the poet, performing? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's been quite recent where I've started to feel really comfortable um, reading um, and it makes me think that I maybe I would like performing like in other uh, capacities I don't know but I don't know if that answers mm -hmm. you know? I think I'm kind of more like myself when I'm being the poet in some ways like when when Stuart described my poems I thought yeah that's what I am <laughs> so I think in normal everyday life I I I tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, I play a lot of different roles in my life. I'm a mom. That's I get loud <laughs> there, and I think maybe that's helped me feel more confident. It's like I'm, I'm I have to assert authority a lot with them. So I'm just like, yeah, Jesus, I don't know. <laughs> I just get I I, but it's me. It's me. I'm I'm a poet, and I'm loud, and I'm quiet, and sleepy, all of those things. Yeah. But it's, it's still, I feel like it's me. Mm -hmm. But I'm just getting older. Mm -hmm. So I feel more confident or tired. Or <laughs> and we will wrap up in about one minute. Oh, no, so is there any final question? Did anyone else want to ask anything? Okay. Well, thank you. If you want to, if you want to stick around and talk to the random debater, buy your book or uh, eat a bit, we'll probably need to get out in pretty shortly. But uh, thank you all so much. Yes. And thank, thank you. And you just heard the final piece uh, in the November 13th event, uh, the Q&A there at the Community House, also known as 99 York Street, called uh, the event called Feed Dog and Friends Kingston Launch uh, with readings by Dale Tracy, Ellis Burdick, and Allison Chisholm all launching uh, their new books, or at least Kingston launching them, and <clears throat> the event hosted by Stuart Ross. And... Uh, I've got just a couple of minutes. Uh, I do have more. It's getting that time of the year where there aren't that many lit events, but there are calls for submissions out there. So I'd like to share a few of those. But before I do that, uh, and then I also have some recorded uh, things that need to air as well before the end of the hour. But uh, I do want to thank you for tuning in uh, today. Uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And a reminder as well that each hour of this show will be uploaded to my blog space for it. Uh, shortly after the show ends, I need to do some studio work this evening, so it might be a bit later. Uh, but uh, And that uh, blog space address is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. We'll remain there for four years. And also, before I uh, get into anything so I don't forget, I want to remind you that uh, I hope you can stay tuned. Two hours, East Coast music coming up right after the top of the hour at 6 o'clock, uh, hosted by Rob Carnell. Yeah, two hours of East Coast music and a show called Salt Water Music. 
And uh, again, uh, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, let's do the event first because I may not even get to the submissions, but they're good till the end of the month. Page through here, find the right page. There is a monthly series uh, that happens. I believe it's the third Wednesday. Yeah, the third Wednesday of each month, uh, facilitated by N. Graham and held at the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship Hall from 2 to 4 p.m. Welcomes anyone interested in writing or reading poetry and prose. Uh, the next uh, in the series is coming up. So uh, this coming Wednesday, December 19th, uh, it says participants uh, can bring their own writing or something they've uh, read and appreciated and present them. Uh, feedback is optional. The series is billed as a quite laid-back and uh, usually fun uh, afternoon. So also offered each section is scheduled time to write from a given prompt of the day. So it does say to enter on the side door of the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship uh, and that's located at 206 Concession Street here in Kingston. And uh, I am not going to get into any calls for submissions, but I've still got a couple of weeks. Uh, even the most quickly expiring ones are open till the end of the year. So I will spend some time with that uh, the next couple of weeks uh, on submissions. So, again, thank you for tuning in. Please, again, do stay tuned for Saltwater Music coming up in just about three and a half minutes. And have a great week. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.